Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible.com, the place to go get digital audiobooks, information you can listen to, and various other forms of audio entertainment. They have more than 100,000 titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, which you can then listen to whenever and wherever you want. And here's an amazing deal. Stop for a moment, ponder this, focus your energy right now. You can get a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial by going to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. That's right, a free audiobook, a special deal for listeners of this program. To get it, all you've got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Go do that. Get your freebie. It's on the house. Fiction, history, romance, erotica, mysteries, thrillers, fantasy, self-help, children's books. You name it, they have it. You like science fiction? They've got science fiction. Check out some titles by the late, great Ray Bradbury. Books like Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, or how about The Illustrated Man? One more time, here's where you go. Audiblepodcast.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, folks, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is conversational in nature. This is monologue plus dialogue. Thank you for being here, for tuning in, for offering me your uh, kind attention. Very excited to be sitting here talking into this microphone. Hello? Hello? And uh, speaking of talking into a microphone, it's sort of interesting to me anyway how some people can be so wildly expressive in certain aspects of their life, uh, whether it be online or in writing. Uh, and so on. Uh, but these same people are made uh, grossly uncomfortable by the prospect of having to conversate with another adult human being. And uh, I know this uh, from having asked uh, multiple writers to be on this program, uh, the overwhelming majority of whom have been more than happy to do it. Uh, it's actually uh, easy to get writers to be a guest on this program, generally speaking, because writers, generally speaking, are working hard to find a readership and get the word out about their books and so on. And uh, they don't get asked to do these kinds of things very often or at least most of them don't. Uh, but then there are some people who are not so eager, uh, which of course uh, is on a certain level a matter of personal preference, uh, like they might not like interviews, 
They might not uh, like people or conversation. They might not like the program, uh, whatever the case may be. But uh, it makes me contemplate uh, the element of control is what I'm driving at and how central control can be to the, uh, you know, to people in general and to uh, writers in particular, because writing, uh, just like any art, is enjoyable at least partially because of the control that it offers or, or the illusion of control. You know, you control the words on the page, you control the characters, you control the setting, you control the weather in the setting, you control uh, the mood swings of the characters as a result of the weather in the setting, you control fashion choices, you control everything. And uh, likewise with, uh, you know, the internet and with social media and the, uh, the presentation of oneself and the maintenance of one's own digital identity, uh, which is, of course, its own kind of narrative. Uh, here again, you know, you control uh, your name, uh, you control your photos, you control your status updates, you control your sexuality, uh, you know, your likes, your friends, you control your timeline, you control your favorites, you control it all. Uh, or does it control you? Anyway, uh, the point is, and I've alluded that, you know, to this before, uh, probably too many times, uh, I think this program was born, at least partially, uh, out of a desire to relinquish some of the control and to pull away some of the formal structure uh, and peek behind the curtain a little bit. And uh, I guess what I'm driving at is this. Increasingly, uh, on a personal level, I find myself repelled by the quest for control, uh, or at least I'm greatly suspicious of it, uh, and not just in other people either. I'm talking about myself too, uh, probably mostly about myself. And uh, I, I guess I find myself repelled in a somewhat visceral way by almost anything related to the maintenance of control, uh, which is, I guess is another way of saying the maintenance of one's own uh, brand. And I don't even like to talk about brands. That's the whole point. I can't stand the concept of brands. Uh, is there anything more depressingly reductive than this sort of talk when you get into conversations about human beings. And, you know, and I specifically don't like to think about the phrase personal brand, as in uh, you know, my personal brand as an artist, which, uh, which freaks me out and makes me sad and depressed and makes me want to cut myself. Uh, and which is, on a certain level, I understand uh, probably childish and uh, almost certainly a little bit hypocritical of me because uh, it's sort of like being frustrated with the weather or some other entity or force of nature that you can't really change because uh, that's part of the environment. It's part of the air that we breathe, and uh, and it's like something that we participate in by default, even if we swear on our lives that we have no interest in doing so. Uh, but regardless, I'm still uncomfortable with it. Uh, I don't care what anyone says. Uh, I'm stubborn that way, and I find myself drawn, I think, reflexively to people uh, who seem to be the least encumbered by these kinds of concerns. I find myself drawn to uh, people and artists uh, who do, you know, who would appear to have unconventional ambitions, which, uh, which is to say, like less of a desire to climb traditional ladders and to stand, uh, figuratively speaking, on traditional mountaintops. And I find myself uh, drawn to the kind of art and the kind of uh, human being who feels, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, accidental and unscripted and impulsive and alive and whose uh, creative work seems to be born in a moment of genuine human enthusiasm rather than in a moment of uh, carefully calibrated marketing strategy and what essentially amounts to product placement with the product in this instance being uh, you know like a human being or some semblance thereof like an avatar photo or a pithy haiku poem 
or something along those lines, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? What am I talking about? Uh, you know, I don't know. And it's entirely possible uh, that my thoughts here are not yet fully formed and uh, that I don't understand all of this well enough to really be articulate about it and to properly encapsulate the feeling. Uh, I think what I'm talking about, perhaps, is wanting to be free, like wanting more freedom internally, externally. And uh, I sort of want the Internet to die, not really, uh, but kind of. And I want to uh, spend my summers by a pond. Do you ever have that feeling? And I want everyone and uh, everything, including myself, to be hooked up to a lie detector at all times. Even dogs, uh, even uh, flight attendants, librarians, the elderly, you name it. Let's do this. Am I serious? Uh, probably not. But in my dreams, these lie detectors would be spring-loaded with sodium pentothal so that if anyone uttered even the slightest bit of untruth, they would immediately be hit with a massive dose of sodium pentothal, which would then cause them to blurt out the unvarnished truth against their will for everybody with an earshot to hear. Do you understand me? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, okay, my guest today is Jurgen Fauth. He is a writer, he's a film critic, he's a translator, an editor, he's a photographer, he's a man of many talents, and he is also a co-founder of the popular online literary community, Fictionaut, which you can find at fictionaut.com. It's a wonderful site. Uh, Jürgen is a native of Wiesbaden, Germany. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And his debut novel is called Kino. It's available now from Atticus Books. Very pleased to have him on the program. Uh, here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Here we are uh, talking in an unvarnished manner, making valiant attempts to relinquish at least a little control. That's right. I'm in a town called Wiesbaden. It's uh, outside of Frankfurt on the Rhine. Nice little spa town. Okay. Um, in the center to the west. It's across the it's across the Rhine from Mainz, where uh, where Gutenberg invented the printing press. Okay. Okay. So now, and what? And you're and you're originally from there. That's right. That's right. This is my hometown. Yeah. And then, okay. And then, what? And you came to the states. I'm trying to get a sense of your biography because you you did your graduate work in Mississippi. Right. And then uh, after that was done, you were living in New York, and then you went to Germany? Almost. I, I grew up here. Um, I studied in Mainz. I did my undergrad, uh, went to Mississippi to school, lived in New Orleans for a little bit. Then after I graduated there, uh, Marcy and I moved to the Dominican Republic, 
for a year and then and then came to New York okay. for the last 10 years. Yeah. Okay, so we have plenty to talk about here cuz uh, <laughs> first of all, all right. how did you how did you start out in this spa town in Germany and then get uh to Mississippi? Um I was stuttering I, I was I was um majoring in American studies here which which was sort of my way of doing literature that wasn't, you know, medieval German stuff. And um, they had a program, an exchange program with places in the States, and I had applied for California. And they called me one morning and said, um, you can't get California, but you can get Mississippi. Um, I said, all right, I'll, I'll go there. And I went there for a year, and they had creative writing classes, um, which, which I loved. And they don't do those in Germany. Um, and so I came back after the year abroad, and I decided I, that's what I wanted to do. So I went back. Because I had then connections in Mississippi, I went back to Mississippi to study there at, at USM with uh, Frederick Bartholomew and Mary Robeson. Oh, okay, yeah, and and they you were saying they they don't have like MFA programs in Germany. That is an American phenomenon. They have two now. There's two and a half. There's one sort of abbreviated program. Two and a half in, in all of Germany. Otherwise, they don't do it. When you when you mention it here, people say, well. You know, Thomas Mann didn't, you know, take writing workshops. Right. Um, they, they, they think it's kind of weird and they um, they don't trust it. And the, it's sort of offered as adult education here with sort of a therapy kind of angle or something. So find yourself in creative writing. But no, no, MF, MFA is an, is an American thing, really. Well, and I just I, I think about it a lot because, you know, I mean, Steve Almond, I want to say, wrote something in The New York Times recently about how, the MFA program has like a therapeutic function, uh, mm. you know, psychotherapy, you know, psychotherapy, uh, even where you have people in a group sharing their stories and, you know, that can often have a, uh, a medicinal effect. But I've, I also think there's a huge uh, financial component to it. Like where else can writers go anymore and hide out and work? You know, there are no uh, I guess there are some post-war economies they can take advantage of, uh, of with great exchange rates and stuff. But it's also a case where the media landscape has changed so profoundly that, you know, it's hard it's hard to make any kind of a living. You know, so I think authors often retreat to MFA, uh, you know, or, or aspiring writers often treat to uh, retreat to MFAs just to find a place to do some work and and you know hopefully find a little bit of community. Yeah, and I think that goes for the students as well as the professors, right? That's also. A place to make a living as a writer and teach, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it certainly certainly was great for me to just you know spend that time being able to write and sort of pursue. Germans are very interested in you know everything has to be sort of orderly and go according to plan, and so um, you know it, it kind of makes sense to to study writing then there, and uh, that's that's how you become a writer. And um, then I could dedicate myself to that. You know, it's, it was a great place to just have a few years and just write. Um, and then as a, as, and a, as a young person in Germany, I mean, if you were majoring in, Mer- in American studies as an undergraduate, uh, and forgive me for not remembering the name of the town, it's Mainz. Is that what it's called? It's Wiesbaden. No, yeah, Mainz is right. Mainz is where I went to school. Yes. Okay, yeah. So you were in Mainz and like you were, you, you were uh, majoring in American studies. Did you have, uh, you know, an acute fascination with the United States as a child, was that something that started when you were really young and that, that developed? I mean, obviously, you must have had an interest in it if you majored in it, right? Uh, I, but not not more than the average German, I don't think. it's. I mean, it's everywhere in the pop culture, you know, the movies we see and the music you listen to. And um, it really was a, was a matter of I didn't know what to, you know, as anyone, I didn't know what to, what to major in. And uh, I wanted to do something with 
literature, but German literature, you know, you start in the Middle Ages, and that's that's something I wasn't I wasn't too interested in. And um, with American literature, it doesn't go back that far, so you reach contemporary um, literature fairly quickly, and that's that's really why I did it. Okay, okay, and then and the adjustment in terms of like you know the cultural adjustment was fairly easy when I came over. Yeah. Um, I mean, no, it's no, it, I was going to say Mississippi, <laughs> Mississippi is quite a, a big step to me making, right? Yeah. It, 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 it kind of blew my mind. Actually. It was a, um, it was also, it wasn't just Mississippi. It was a small Baptist school, uh, called Mississippi college outside of, outside of Jackson, Mississippi, about, um, let's say two and a half thousand students. And, um, most of them were somehow from religious, from families where the, the parents were, um, preachers maybe cause they got, um, you know, they got good deals on tuition. And so, so it was a, it's a very strange environment for me to, to get into. There were all these rules, you know, girls couldn't smoke on campus and there were curfews. And, um, I was, I was 21 and a lot of my friends there weren't, um, which, you know, let, it was very interesting. It was very interesting. They were finally, when you go to school here, um, you kind of can do what you want. You're an adult when you're at university in Germany and there we weren't treated as adults. So there were all kinds of rules to be broken and all kinds of fun to be had with that. Um, I had a great, I ended up having a great time, but it was, it was definitely a, a big culture shock at first. Absolutely. Okay. And then, uh, you, you mentioned that you spent some time in new Orleans after Mississippi. Uh, and that's a town that's sort of near and dear to my heart. My family, uh, my parents both come from Louisiana. So I'm interested, mm-hmm. interested to hear about how you wound up there and what your experience was like there. Well, after after Mississippi College, I moved further south a little bit. I went for, for grad school. Then I went to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is sort of halfway between Jackson and New Orleans. And um, I was there for five years. I did the, the MA and the PhD there. And so for the last year of that, I was done with classes. And um, Marcy and I moved moved to New Orleans for that last year. And uh, where'd you live? On uh, in the Garden District, actually. We're on. Uh, Jefferson Avenue, around the corner from the Britannia Theater, okay. um, which is a, a very nice block, or kind of the shabbiest, shabbiest house on that block. Um, and it was it was kind of wonderful the, the year we spent there. Yeah, no, it's a nice place. And then you go yeah. to then you go to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, I found New Orleans as a. I really felt like an outsider there. I I, I don't know that my impression was that this is a town where. Um, you know, you have to really know people and where families have lived for generations. And, um, I found it very hard to sort of really get a footing there. So once, once we were done with, uh, once I was done with school, I looked around and, um, what I found was a, this was in 1999, I think in the, the, uh, early 2000s, just after the millennium and the, um, the internet bubble was just just going crazy still, and there was a there was a job opening in the Dominican Republic for a, uh, a translation company um, that offered dynamic internet translations. You know, um, from around the world, they would do it overnight, and um, we, we went there uh, sight unseen. You know, to a to a little tourist town on the north coast called Susua, and um, there were people from all over the place. There were Belgians and Cubans and uh, People from Japan, Americans, they were literally all over the place, French people, uh, young people. And it was sort of a, sort of a, um, really fun workplace. You know, it wasn't even a real office. We worked, we worked in a, in a house where they had just put up planks with computers and we translated there. And, uh, the power would go out a couple of times a day and they would throw on a generator in the back of the building and the fumes would, would go through the building. Um, 
<laughs> it was, you know, it was, and it was a tourist town. It was a, it was a, a very, you know, interesting place to live for a little while. We, you know, uh, lived in a hotel. I'd go for lunch break. I would go back to the hotel and spend some laps in the pool and then go back and translate some more. And, uh, you know, Marcy, Marcy would write, uh, and, uh, the weekends would go scuba diving, you know, oh, wow. um, which, you know, which was, it, it was, it was great fun for a while. And then after nine months, I think we decided that was, that was enough of that. And, uh, we, uh, we moved to New York. Okay. So then it was New York. Okay. And then what ultimately, what ultimately brought you back to Germany? You just decided you wanted to spend some time there as well. I mean, you've got this great dual citizenship thing, right? I mean, Yes, I do now. I didn't for the longest time. I was in the States on a first on a student visa and then on a green card. And um, just last October, actually, got my got my American citizenship and uh, I can keep the German. So, yeah, I'm, I'm covered now. I got them both. Um, well, we had a kid is what happened, I think. And um, after 10 years in Queens, we had to realize that with a kid, this was this was not the place for us. And um so we came here where my family is, where my family can help taking care of the kid. Um, we weren't getting a lot of work done there anymore. You know, we're b- both writers, both working from home. Um, we didn't have uh, daycare. Uh, so we were, we were juggling, you know, Nina and cafes. And, uh, yeah, we, we really weren't getting enough work done. Sure. So the idea was to come to come here where things are a little easier. Our health insurance had run out, uh, which is a good thing to have. And, um so very Wait, socialized. You have you have yeah, you have healthcare in Germany. Oh my oh, god! Oh yeah, very very good healthcare. In fact, it, it uh, sort of stunningly good deal. Um, I've got some back problems that are getting taken care of. So yeah, um, the plan is to spend a little bit of time here and then and then figure out where we want to go next. Wow, it sounds exotic. I, I envy that. Just the, the the mobility. It sounds fun to me. Um, and I you know I was reading just to shift gears a little bit. I was reading. Uh, up on you a little bit before uh, we, we jumped on the phone. And uh, I, one of the things that struck me was the fact that you uh, are a fan of David Lynch's book, Catching the Big Fish. Is that what it's called? That's right. Am I remembering? That's right. um, yeah, Catching the Big Fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I love that. Like I actually uh, I actually listened to that on audiobook. He's a great reader because he's got – He reads it, right? Yeah, yeah, he's got that great voice. But um, you've started uh, doing meditation or like a form of TM that isn't like $3,000 to learn, right? Right. That's it. Yeah. So what yeah. is it? How did, how did you stumble into this? I think people should uh, – I'm, I'm interested to hear this because TM is like – it's like some people call it cultish and then it's really expensive and it's, you know, I've never done it, uh, you know, not for lack of interest, but because I don't have $3,000 sitting around to learn how to do it. It seems like sort of a scam to me. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Or it's at least it's too much to invest just to find out if it's a scam or not. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was always, I was always curious about it. And then I read this book, which in a way is his pitch for, for TM. Yeah. And, um, you know, I really wanted to do it, but as same as you, I did I didn't have the two and a half or three thousand dollars it costs to learn it. Um, I thought yeah, it has to it has to be on the internet, right? You have to be able to find it somewhere online. So I did a whole bunch of googling, and um, I think in a footnote on Wikipedia on TM, I found a link to a site um, that's run by former TM teachers, who I think were the idea is get, uh, getting this that they were they were. Uh, unhappy with the way that the, the, the organization was run. They left it and they decided to teach uh, th- this method. It's a, it's a very specific technique. You know, people say, well, you could just meditate and just sit there. Um, and I've tried that and that gets, that gets really boring. 
Um, and, and TM is a, is a very specific technique that you that you do. And so they teach it on their website, which is called um, Natural Stress Relief. Um, and um, you have to click around a little bit, and there's a way you can you can download. Usually, when you when you when you um, learn TM from a, from a teacher and you spend that money, you get uh, you get classes, you get one on one, I think, instructions with a with a TM teacher. When you do it the way I do it, did it from this website, you, you I think you PayPal them twenty five bucks and they send you an audio file and a PDF, and that's it. And then you you learn it from that. That's, um, how, that's how you get your mantras on PDF. That's right. That's right. This is the thing, right? There's a, there's a mantra. The, the, um, TM, the TM organization says you have to, uh, they give you your personalized mantra after they get to know you. And these guys say, no, there's, you know, there's like six mantras and they just kind of give them out at random. Here's a couple that work, pick one, go, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and, um, and it, and it worked great for me. You know, I, 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 uh, read the PDF and you listen to the sound file and I started doing it. You do it twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning and at night. And, uh, and how do you make the time? I mean, do you do it? You just do it right when you wake up. Like, you know, the discipline is the hard part. I, I, it's one of those things like w- whatever form it is, whether you're sitting there, whether you have a mantra, just like just sitting down and shutting up for, you know, 40 minutes a day seems like a healthy thing to do and sitting still, not like having right? a screen in front of your face or, you know, some sort of distraction. I find it extremely pleasant to do. Like I feel refreshed. I feel I feel uh, happier afterwards, more more focused. So I, I really look forward to doing it. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I haven't missed. I've cut it short sometimes, or I've done it on the subway, but I haven't really missed um, a meditation in like the I don't know five or six years that I've been doing it. I've been doing it um, every day just because I like doing it so much. It feels good, so I don't want to miss it. Um, and then can you, can you tell me like tangibly, like, uh, do you notice tangible differences in your work life or in your life in general? Like, can you really feel a difference or see, um, you know, qualitative difference in, in different aspects of your life because of it? I, I, I think so. Um, one of the things I've definitely noticed is that I sleep better. I, I, you know, used to have, used to be an insomniac, wake up in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, oh God, that's sit. me. That's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've done a lot of that. You know, four a.m. Uh, internet, uh, and and um, I don't do that anymore. I, you know, I sleep well. Is one of the one of the things, and I feel I don't know um, clearer. I think um, more focused. I'm sort of able to get distractions out of the way and get um, let let go of stuff that bothers me that that troubles me where you know the the kind of stuff you waste time on getting angry about where you know the the only thing to do is just get over it and move on and and um that's is, something i find I find easier to do now yeah, just, which is which applies to which applies to almost everything you know <laughs> like well, right almost right. everything you would get angry about or obsess about tends to be uh you know superfluous right. ultimately right yeah. Uh, and when you and when you do this this method from these guys, you know, that's the only contact I ever had with them. You know, I downloaded their file, and that's that. They have a forum where you can ask questions, but basically, there's no, you know, if you're worried about it being a cult or anything, it, it really, you don't ever have to talk to them again after you right. after you learn how to do it. Well, no, it's funny. I was watching uh, the other night. I was watching the Martin Scorsese documentary on George Harrison, who was on HBO or something like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is fascinating. And like you see the old footage of the Maharishi back in the day when the Beatles were, you know, in their heyday. And um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's something to it. I think that, uh, like I said, it's it's like 
it's as simple as just like just sitting down and being quiet mm-hmm. and not talking or doing anything or saying anything. Uh, it just seems like logical, like logically, uh, that would be a positive thing to do, especially in the world that we live in now. And especially if you're a writer, which is essentially the same thing that you're doing when you're sitting there in front of your, uh, blank page or blank screen or whatever, you know, it's, it's, there, there are some, mm-hmm. things, I think, right. It helps you, it helps keep you there when you're working on fiction. If you've done this, it helps you like refine that discipline. Maybe I think so. I think so. This is saying that, that, um, you might've written the same thing or the, the, this is something that Lynch quotes from the Maharishi is saying, um, uh, he says, uh, uh, see the work, do the work, stay out of the misery. You know, and I think that's, I think that's a terrific little, little quote that, that has helped me write, you know, just figure out what you have to do it and, and do it. Don't, don't fret, don't whine, don't complain. Just, just do your writing, you know, and when you sit there and you have time to write, then just, just do it. Um, it's, it's a really simple bit of advice that, that I think has helped me a lot. And that's an, it's a simple bit of advice that can be hard to follow. <laughs> well, there is that, there is yeah. that, but, but yeah. Um, but in a way you, you kind of know that everything you do when you're supposed to be writing everything, all the distractions are, are useless, right? And in, in the end you have to stop and just, and just work. So, right. Exactly. So did yeah. you, how, like with your novel, like, did you, uh, struggle with it for a long time? Did it go through like several different iterations or was it something that you had to struggle to just find the time to do? And once you had that time, you were able to get it done. Like how, how did it, how did, how was it birthed? You know, because it happens all sorts of different ways. Yeah. It, um, the first draft went, it took a long time, but it went fairly well. I had, um, I started writing it on January 1st because I had, a, I had started a new, uh, new year's resolution, right. To, to write every day. Cause that's, that's a, I think a useful thing to do. So I started, um, and this was in Berlin, actually. I started writing it in Berlin on January 1st in a little sublet apartment and um, worked on it every day for almost two years. I think it was like Christmas Day, two years later, that I, that I finished a draft. Um, and I put it aside for a few months and went over it, edited it, sent it out, um, found an agent who had who liked it, but who had... Um, a bunch of edits. She, she wanted, she wanted a number of changes. Um, part of it was written in screenplay format because it's, you know, about the movies. And so I thought it was clever um, to write some of the scenes as a screenplay. And uh, she said that that doesn't really work. <laughs> so, um, so she gave me a bunch of work really. Um, it was, it was all insightful and right. I think on um, the screenplay sections didn't work because the, the, you know, the reader has to come up with too much, like you're much better off. Putting that in, I was cheating, really. I was cheating. I was trying to just get the dialogue down and, and move the scene along. And um, then what happened is that uh, we had a kid, right? <laughs> uh, trust me, I know. I know. I, 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 we have one ourselves. It, it change, changes everything, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It really does, especially when it comes to the to the writing business. Because um, for the first half year, I wasn't doing a thing, and then then I started going back to the to the writers' room in in Manhattan, and um, then worked on all those edits for another. Uh, four or five months, maybe three, four months. Um, got that in, and um, so so this this last part really of these these edits took took a long time. Um, um, there was a lot of back and forth. I, I polish and edit a lot. Um, it has a fairly convoluted story that required going back and forth and, and really making sure that all the all the parts work 
together. Um, so all in all, it took, you know, um, three, four years, something like that. Hey, you guys, real quick, just want to give one more plug to today's sponsor, Audible.com, and to remind you to please go get your free digital audiobook that's on the house, that's on other people. To get your hands on your free digital audiobook, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Once again, that is audiblepodcast.com slash other people. You can get uh, some great literature. You can get a book. You can listen to it on your headphones. You can listen to it in your car on the commute to work, whatever the case may be. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Thank you very much. Now back to the program. And, and you say, and like one, one of the things you said earlier is that you were, you know, you made a decision to write every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means seven days a week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess every day means every day, but uh, <laughs> what's the, you know, what is the upside? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, cause Again, people do it in different ways. Sometimes you hear people who work like three days a week, or they work in bur- mm. they work in really you know big like manic bursts. And then there are other people. I- I'm more like you. Like I tend to like to write every day. I like to feel like I'm in some sort of working rhythm. Or I, I you know, once I get into it, I don't want to get out of it because then I feel on days when I don't work, I feel weird. Does that you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's part of it. Like a, a really then if I take a day off, then who's to say? Then maybe I want to take the next day off too. So um I'm stubborn, you know, and so if I have a if I have a rule like that to work every day, uh, I keep my keep my what is it, the nose to the grindstone, I'll I'll just I'll just keep working, you know. Um and some of those days I have to say, if if you know, if we were on a vacation or whatever, if we were on a trip, um I have a busy day, sometimes I'd r- literally just write a sentence, you know. Um but but I would look at it every day, I'd keep my head in it and I'd I'd do something to it. And, uh, and then, you know, some days I spent the entire day working on it. Um, but it's that kind of, that kind of rule just helped me, helped me to keep, uh, keep going. Yeah. Just like a level of commitment. And do you mm-hmm. find, you find like, uh, living in Germany, do you find that it's an easier play? I mean, I know for like family reasons and like childcare reasons and stuff like that and healthcare reasons, uh, <laughs> that it's easier for, uh, you know, just like the, the mechanics of your life to work, but is it, is it a, is it easier? Is it any easier for an artist to make a living there than it is here, or is it is it as hard there as it seems to be here? Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. I think it's there's a wonderful thing this this health insurance. Um, uh, I had to there was there was a lot of uh, truly Kafka esque um, level of bureaucracy involved, but I now have a, a uh, uh, an artist's health insurance. You know that is that is dependent on your income as an artist. And is ridiculously low. I mean, it's it's absolutely ridiculously low. Um, so that's something that that um, uh, makes it easier to be an artist here. Uh, yeah. Just that alone, because like this is the thing. Like, yeah. I've, I've had conversations with people about this, where it's like, you know, oh yeah, you know, you live in Europe and you pay these super high taxes, and you know, blah blah blah. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, maybe you pay a little bit higher taxes, but you also have mm. healthcare and uh, university education covered. So when you actually when you actually suss it out and do the math, you're actually uh, get you know you're actually making more money there. You know what I'm saying? You have more discretionary income that isn't going mm-hmm. to things like healthcare every month or going to uh, you know pay off student loans or whatever the case may be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's like the the math can when you actually sit down and, and crunch the numbers. Uh, you know, it's not what a lot of people think, 
or am I wrong? Right, right. No, I think I think you're right. Um, we're, we're a little bit of a special case because a lot of the freelance editing work we do and some of the money is still coming in in the U.S. We're, we're now paying taxes in both countries, and it gets it gets a little involved. Um, but where was I going with that? Just uh, just like the cost of living and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know how it works. <laughs> Right. I mean, Wiesbaden is certainly more affordable than, than New York. What we're trying to figure out right now is whether or not, you know, the, the sort of, it's, it's also a lot slower than New York. And I'm not sure we got used to that for 10 years. Um, and, um, you know, there's some culture here, but it's nowhere near what it is there. Um, and we don't know how much of that we need to, to sort of sustain us. Uh, well, it's a, yeah, it's a strange it's a strange negotiation. I have that with myself and with my wife all the time, where we're talking about uh, where to live. Which, of course, always mm-hmm. it always cha- it changes no matter what. But it especially changes when you have a family and you're trying to decide what the best place would be. And um, like when you left New York after ten years of being there, and suddenly you're in this uh, town, and uh, you know what's the population there? It's like three hundred thousand. Okay, so yeah, I mean, significantly smaller uh, and, and a slower pace of life, like. What was the initial adjustment like? Was it was it pleasant to actually have it be slower, or were you like, you know, dear God, there needs to be more happening here? I'm going to fall asleep standing up. No, I found it. I found it very pleasant actually. I found it so relaxing. I felt like, oh my God, you know, um, I can I can absolutely. It, it felt like decompression. Just poof. yeah. Um, you know, there's it's green here. You can take it's it's very easy. It's a it's a very you know this spa town. It's it's pretty mellow. It's pretty. Um, I, I like that. And the thing is that, sorry, we, we were over there as parents of a one-year-old. Um, we weren't really doing a lot of, you know, taking a lot of the advantages of, of, uh, that New York had to offer. So in a way, you know, there's one uh, good uh, uh, repertory movie theater here and there's one nice uh, art museum. Uh, or you can go to Frankfurt if you want to. So if you if you want you know if you want to see art if you want to see a, a foreign film you can. Um, you don't have a hundred foreign films playing at the same time, but there's usually one interesting film playing, and maybe maybe that's enough. You well, know? yeah, it makes it nice. You don't have to sit around making some sort of complicated decision. You know, it's sort, <laughs> sort of made for you. Right, right, right. Okay, this, now, the, yeah. and and um, also when you say when you refer to it as a spa town. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? What do you mean? What is a spa? The healing waters. This is you know Wiesbaden. It's a it's a uh, they're, they're sulfur sulfur. Uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, the, the waters. So you can go take the waters. It was actually founded by the Romans as a as a as a aquis uh, matiakis or something like the. Uh, it is uh, they came here to to take baths. So there's a, there's a beautiful downtown. There's an absolutely beautiful thermal spa that has some elaborate mosaics and uh, you can go and there's a number of different saunas and there's, there's hot pools of, of this, this healing mineral water. So, and it's uh, like, very pleasant. Yeah. Like in back in the day, like, uh, I, you know, I read this in, uh, you know, literature of the 20th century, early 20th century literature where people were going to take cures. Do you know that phrase where people would take yes, cures? Yes, yes. Is this, is this the kind of town where people would take a cure? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it had a big boom actually at the turn of the century where the Russian Tsar and Dostoevsky was here. There's, there's the gambler, uh, set in Wiesbaden. Uh, there's a casino and yes, it's that kind of place. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not quite the Magic Mountain, but it, but it, but it has some of that. Okay, and so, uh, and where, yeah. we, and and you grew up here, and like, what was childhood like there? It's fun. 
Uh, yeah, I think it was fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's the only one I had, so I don't quite know what to compare it to, but it was, yeah, it was, it felt, you know, safe and fun. And, um, I hated middle school, like anyone does. And, um, I was glad to get out of here when I did too. And it's strange to be back now. Absolutely. Um, but it, it does, it does have its advantages. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And what is it? I mean, it's, it's obvious. like, what's the old saying? You can't go home again, you know, and you go home and you've been away for all these years. It's a different place than when you left it, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's more multicultural now than it, than it ever was. And, um, um, I thought all my old friends would still be here, but they all moved to Berlin or something. And, uh, yeah, it's it's. I haven't quite figured out exactly what it is to be back here, but it's it's odd, and it's not the place I left. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I want to ask you a little bit about Germany because Germany fascinates me. Um, you know, I, my experiences meeting uh, Germans through the years, and especially like you know, because I was traveling when I was just out of college, and this is where I'm drawing most of my experiences from. But mm. um, you know, I'd be out traveling and backpacking around, and I'd meet uh, other young people from Germany. And I was always like really struck by how politically aware, uh, these people were like, not only uh, politically mm. aware within like the context of their, their home country, but also just like politically aware on an international level. Like a, a lot of them knew, uh, a lot about the United States and more than the average American mm. even, uh, mm-hmm. you know, about our political process and what was happening. And I don't know if that was just a matter of coincidence or if it was, um, something, you know, I, you know I, I try to piece it together in my head, and I try to think about like German national history, which is obviously pretty heavy on the the, the midpoint of the 20th century, and then sure. the, the, you know the, the aftermath of that and the psychological implications that it must have uh, on like a you know just like a national psyche and how people um, you know respond to that. Like, it, how much of that is palpable there, and like how much of that do you feel as a part of? your national identity and like, how, how does it inform? You know, I, I think that there's obviously, you know, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's dark stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like there is, um, a level of conscious attention that's grown out of that uh, in a corrective sense that is actually quite positive. Do you, you know, or am I misreading it? I, I, I can't speak. Yeah, yeah no, I think, I think, I think Germans are very keenly aware of their history, you know, and, um, I mean, I, I can't really speak for, for the current generations coming up now, but, um, you know, I was born, what, I guess the second generation, my parents are baby boomers born after the war. Um, and I came of age in the seventies and eighties. And for us, oh, the, the Holocaust of the third Reich was omnipresent in school. You know, they would, they would talk about it all the time. They would talk about it in history class in sociology in religion in German class, we would read books about that time. I mean, it was it was just everywhere. Every, and every year, you know, it would come up in some other way. Um, so... Did it affect your... <laughs> does that affect your confidence at all? Like, you're like, Jesus, this is my country. This has happened <laughs> here. Or does it... You know what I'm saying? Like, cause I, well, you, you never feel patriotic, you know. I think that has come back now. I, I, I remember there was a... When, when Germany won the World Soccer World Cup, there was this real upsurge of, oh, wow, now we can be proud of Germany again a little bit. Um, but for me, it was it was always, you know, you, you cannot be a patriot. You cannot love your country in that way because of what happened. And when I came to the state, States, it was it was <laughs> odd for me to discover how you know, strongly people felt how much they loved America and uh, at Mississippi College they had I Love America Day 
where <laughs> I don't know if this is a thing or if it was just there, but they had a big, you know, festival on the campus and everybody was waving flags and stuff like that is always, always very suspicious to me. You know, I oh, cannot yeah. look at that and not think, well, you know, it's the careful, last, it's careful, the, la- it's the last refuge of the scoundrel, you know? Right. Right. And I, just, um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a, I have, I feel like I have kind of a, an understanding of patriotism that runs counter to popular understanding. Like I think when you're actually invested, uh, you know, in the history of your country in a really serious way, or you, you know, you pay real close attention to the political process and criticize it when you, you know, when it, you feel it, it deserves it. Uh, that's what patriotism is to me. And that's not all that it is, but that's what it is. And there's just kind of like this chest thumping flag waving, uh, never, mm-hmm. apo- never apologize attitude here in, in the States that, uh, I think is like, uh, lame and dangerous at worst, you know? Right. It was, it was curious for me to see down South where, you know, the, there's the, the civil war was not so long ago and slavery and that entire history had not been, you know, work up in, in such a way by the, by the students there. They, you know, they still, I hope jokingly perhaps, but they still called it the war of Northern aggression. And, um, they, they did not feel, you know, they did not feel Put it this way, they did not feel guilty about the Civil War in the way that, that we feel guilty about, you know, the Third Reich. They, they, I mean, it's, you know, you can't compare those things. But um, No, but there, there are people down south who are still still fighting that Civil War. I mean, I remember right, right, I was yeah. down in North Carolina once and I was camping and I, I met a guy. I had just set up camp. I like put my tent up and I met a guy who was out there with his son and uh, he was like fully into the whole – uh, Civil War reenactment, and was talking to his son about like the how you know how the South was going to rise again. And I was I just happened to be there in the same little area, but he you know th- there was no uh, there was no irony. He was serious, right? right, <laughs> I was right, like, right. Holy shit! Um, well, that, was, that was a learning experience for me to to see that as well. Yeah. yeah. So you know, but I don't know. It's just it's 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 interesting, and uh, you know, you're you growing up when you did, and how um, yeah, I don't know how that colors your education and how. Uh, I don't know how the entire country sort of responded to that. And it seems Mm -hmm. to me that it instilled and like, I guess it's the kind of thing that has to be maintained because these things like it's sort of pitiful how short uh, people's memories can be, you know, Uh, like at least that's the way I feel about it here. Sometimes, you know, it's like the United States of amnesia. Like we remember, sure, you know, Mm -hmm. and so in Germany, like, you know, there's, is there, do you feel like there is a real, uh, concerted effort. I guess there there must be to sort of replay and remind constantly to make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen again. I I assume, but to be honest, since we've been back here, I've, my media diet has been mainly American. <laughs> you know, I've been following the internet. I don't have TV here, so I don't quite know as much about German popular culture as as you may think. I am, um, you know, I still follow. That's it's a funny thing about the about the web. Um, I, uh, my, my media diet still looks the same way. You know, I read the New York times and the iPad. I still read this, watch the same things as I, as I did in the, in the States. So a lot of those questions, I'm probably not the best person to ask. Um, what are you watching on your, uh, on your iPad? What's your, what's your media diet aside from the New York times? Um, you know, whatever comes, whatever comes over the Twitter wires, I, I suppose, uh, you know, I watch girls, <laughs> uh, um, probably just everything, uh, everything you guys are watching over there really. Yeah. Um, 
And so, and then you were just over here for book tour for a little bit, right? Little little East Coast. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did. We did. Uh, I did three readings in in New York, uh, which were which were great fun. Great fun to do. Triumphant, like victory tour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of old friends coming by, and uh, yeah, I had a good time. It was, it was really fun. I read at uh, KGB with uh, Tom Parada and Mark Lehner, which which was very exciting. I did a Sunday salon reading uh, with uh, Mifani Collins and uh, Rob Todd and uh, a number of people. And I read at uh, Pete's Candy Store out in Brooklyn uh, with Deborah Kogan. And uh, what's Pete's Candy Store? Am I supposed a, to know that? It's a it's a bar. And yes, you might have seen it if you if you saw the um, movie called uh, My Idiot Brother. Zoe Deschanel is in it, and she does a stand-up comedy routine, yes. which, is, which is shot, which is shot at Pete's Candy Store. It's a very sort of striking um, venue. It, it looks like a like a like the inside of a of a train car or something with uh, red lights and a little stage at the end. Yeah, it's like kind of a narrow. It's, a, it's like a narrow room, right? Right, uh, right, did, right, right. I actually saw that movie. I don't know if I really like that movie, <laughs> but I did see it. Right, yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought it was a fun movie, and uh, yeah, it's a great place, great place to read uh, in in Williamsburg. And so, and let's talk about fiction art a little bit. Sure, sure. Like what was because we, you know, we both sort of run uh, online uh, mm-hmm. liter- literary communities, so I feel like we probably have had similar experiences. But like, talk about the origin story for fiction art. Um, like at first, and, and maybe tell listeners mm-hmm. what it is, just so in case people who are listening don't, you know, have experience with it, can know a little bit about it. It's a, it's a literary community that um, it's sort of part social. The way I explain it is to say it's part social network and part a self-generating literary magazine. Um, the idea was that um, I, I always thought there should be a way on the internet to to run a literary magazine that's different from the sort of uh, traditional way of people people send in their stories. Somebody picks them and then they get they get they get put out in a in a, in a nice little bundle. And I've, and I'd seen that as a writer, as an editor and as a reader. And I thought that there has to be a better way. And when social media sort of started getting big in 2006 or seven, I thought, hey, there has to be, you know, Flickr really was was the idea. There has to be a way that you can build a site where anyone can post stories or poetry and then um, depending on the user feedback, depending on what people comment on, what they look at, what they read, and uh, what they, you know, mark favorite with a little star, we can, we can calculate which stories are popular, and then those get, get shown on the front page. So you basically have a magazine where anyone can post, um, and we're, we're, we're farming out the editing, basically, to, to everybody. You know, uh, we're crowdsourcing the editing process in a way. And it, it was just kind of this, this idea I had, and I, you know, sitting at a cafe and I sketched it out. I thought, wow, that, that could really work. You know, I could I could see how that could work. And then the next thought was, I have no idea how to build this. <laughs> you know, I've, yeah. I, I can't I can't do this, uh, but somebody will. And I sort of put it aside, or I might have messed around with some WordPress plugins, and I realized I, I can't I can't do this. And I put it aside, and then. A year or two passed, and nobody had done anything quite like that um, still. And so I got a little bit more serious, and I um, posted on the internet. You know, I have an idea, and who can who can help with this? And I found a, um, a developer in Houston, Carson Baker, who uh, said that that sounds great. Let's do it. And and we we set up the site, and we developed it from scratch. It's you know, it's programmed from the ground up. 
um, custom build. And it was still kind of an experiment. It was like, well, a lot of people said, well, that can't really work. You know, that's just gonna, that's not gonna work. Um, so we we're very careful, um, building it, uh, inviting, using invites, you know, to build it, to get talented people on there, to get interesting, um, people into the community. And then we give them more invites to invite more people and we grew it that way. And it's been going for, um, two, three years now. And there's some, um, there's a whole bunch of people on there and, uh, thousands of stories, tens of thousands of stories by now. And it's, you know, it's working, um, which is still kind of amazing to me. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's because like, it's, um, it's like an organism, you know, it just right, sort, of, it right. sort of takes off in directions that you didn't really even expect sometimes. I, I'm, I'm still, I still remember when, when the first time I decided to go on vacation and, um, you know, we were we were out of the country and there, were, there was no internet. And for a few days, I couldn't check on it. You know, and I, was, I got very nervous. <laughs> and then when I finally when I finally got to an internet cafe and I looked at it, and it it was just fine. You know, it was just fine without me doing anything. And um, there was a real moment of oh wow, you know, this this is just working by itself. It doesn't need me to do anything right now because um, all these people have shown up who who kind of take over and who who do their thing. And so, so and the it, site, the site, uh, in terms of how it's engineered, like if if there's a story, let's say I write a story and put it up on Fictionaut, and it beca- and it gets a lot of favorites or it gets a lot of clicks, the site and the way that it's engineered automatically reads that and generates that story to the homepage without you having to do anything. Is that right? Correct? Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a list on the front page of the latest stories. So if you just post something, it'll it'll get some exposure no matter what. It'll be on the front page for a little while. Um, and then there's a, on the, on the other side, there's a, there's a list of recommended stories that are, you know, community recommendations really that gets generated by an algorithm. And then what about mon- Cause I mean, like this is the big challenge for me with the nervous breakdown. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but like, do you have, or, or maybe you have no plans to monetize it, but like, do you think about monetization and like how to make money doing it? Or is it just kind of like, sure. No, we wouldn't mind, Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, we absolutely wouldn't mind. And, and there's, there's a lot of changes I'd like to make to it. There's, there's, you know, um, there's a redesign of the front page. I have ideas for things that I'd like to do that I can't do because I don't have the, I don't have the funds to do. Um, so no, I'd be very interested in monetizing it. We have some ads. I think we're both using the same ad network, right? Are well, you, sure. Yeah. Well, um, Lit yeah. Breaker. Let's give Lit Breaker a plug. <laughs> yes. He's, he's, uh, to Jason, uh, Chambers of Lit Breaker is doing a great job. Um, we have those ads. Um, we have some other ideas i would like i would like um to uh be able to let let people make collections of stories okay if i'm a user i should be able to make like a playlist of stories like an anthology a collection and then take that collection and put it put it on kindle you know put it on amazon sell it and then everybody would get a cut the writers would get a cut the person who put it together gets a cut and and we would get paid that's that's one of the ideas we have, but that requires a bunch of programming, which we haven't been able to get done. Right. It's always the technology, you know. It's like it's such a, sure. you know, it's one of the things that if I look back on my life, like if there's one skill that I wish I had, I wish I was a really good computer programmer because then yeah. you could actualize all these different things that you, you know, you have a million creative ideas, but it's all, you know, it's all uh, stuff that you you need somebody who understands, you know, whatever it is, HTML5 or javascript or you know in order to be yeah. able to, add to in order ruby to be- on rails is what, what we're using and i you know i, I at some point I, I thought you know screw it i'll, I'll just sit down and i'll learn it now it's never too late i'll just learn and uh, i realized now it's, it's a little too late for that. 
<laughs> not going to figure that out anymore. Right, right, right. So, but it doesn't seem to take like a huge amount of your time. Like you're not spending like a huge amount of your day. Like you're able to focus on creative projects and other jobs and stuff like that. Yeah. At this point, at this point, um, Carson does a lot of the, the programming backend work of, you know, um, when there's glitches and um, technical problems, I, I, I can't fix uh, those anyway. Um, you know, we, we have, we have a very, um, kind of happy and supportive user base. So I don't have to do a lot of moderation in terms of, uh, you know, people are, if anything, they're too friendly on fiction app, you know, they're not, there's not a lot of trolling or name calling or anything like that, where I would have to spe- uh, step in. Uh, the most time I spent really is on the fiction app blog that kind of took on a life of its own that I didn't expect it to. It was supposed to be just for, you know, site news and, um, people, came to me and said, well, how about we do an interview series or how about we do, uh, you know, certain kinds of features that we, that we now do. So, um, I have some wonderful contributors who, uh, work with me and who sent me, who sent me, uh, uh, content for lack of a better word, who sent me interviews, um, who sent me features and, you know, I formatted those, I put them up, I edit them. Um, that's, that's really the lion's share of the time I spend with it on it uh, at this point and then what about uh what about like the fiction like are you now that you've done this book tour you've got this novel out into the world um are you already working on the next thing (laughs) well i wish i wish um no i haven't been i'm i'm uh yeah taking up my time with with um kino still really i'm doing this thing i'm doing a tumblr uh, I don't know if you've seen that, where you know the the book is all about the the Weimar Republic years and the silent German expressionist silent film, and um, I'm keeping this Tumblr called Tulpendiebe, which is named for one of the one of the uh, fictional films in the book, and I'm putting up uh, pictures, movies, uh, art from the Weimar Republic days, and. Um, I've done so much research for the book that I thought it would be fun to open that up to people. Um, so what yeah. I'm doing now, when I was, you, was going to say like, can you talk a little bit just so listeners who might not have like a, a, you know, like a deep understanding of German film history, like talk about the period that you're drawing from for this book. You know, what was it that inspired it or what? You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's about a, the book is about a fictional, um, silent film director who's who goes by Kino, um, which just means the movies. Um, but he's, he's made up and he supposedly made his first movie in 1927. And, uh, so it's the, the, the book is really inspired by that, by that period of, of German silent film. And a lot of the historical figures of that time show up in the book. So you have scenes where Fritz Lang or Leni Riefenstahl, um, show up, and uh, in his early years, my, my character is one of the uh, one of the extras on a, a, a big Fritz Lang production of Die Nibelungen, and um, and then as that time, I was always fascinated with the, the Weimar Republic, really the, the time between um, the, the World Wars in Germany in, in Berlin specifically, the you know the the, the time of cabaret, you know the the, the sort of dance on the volcano, um, really flourishing of the arts, um, incredible, incredible flourishing of the arts in Berlin, Berlin at the time. Uh, that then just abruptly ended in 1933 when Hitler took power and, and everybody left, you know, and I was always really interested in that, in that moment, um, when people realized, wait, this is, this is going nowhere good. And, uh, it, you know, it must've been one of the great exoduses of, you know, uh, 
talent at any time anywhere. Just people, just people leaving the country, getting out of there. Right, I think um, like Billy Wilder. I mean, there are a lot of uh, filmmakers that came over to the states. Like Billy Wilder was. Did, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Billy Wilder did. He, I think, he left earlier. Uh, Moore now left earlier. Um, Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang has the story where supposedly uh, Josef Goebbels, the the new propaganda minister, called him into his office and said, "We, we love your work, and we'd like you to be the Führer of cinema." And Fritz Lang said, wow, that's a great honor. And according to him, he left the office and that day got on a train <laughs> to Paris and, you know, left the country forever. Um, <laughs> which, which, as it turns out, isn't, isn't quite true. You know, I read a biography where they, uh, they looked at his passports and so forth, and that's, that's not quite the case. That's not how it happened. But, you know, a lot of people realized right away that this, this, this was not going anywhere good. And well, they, they left. Um, and, the, and, the, and the film studios got taken over, like I think three months into the Nazi regime, they took over Ufa Studios and, you know, fired every Jewish employee they had. So it was, it was pretty clear to people, wait, you know, um, and yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them came to the States. And um, what, one of the things the book is about is that my main character decides to stay um, for a number of reasons that are sort of ambiguous. And that's one of the questions of the book is why does he stay? And um, and he makes movies under the Nazis, which is also a very interesting chapter of the kind of filmmaking, you know, propaganda films. Um, there were the outright propaganda films. And then there were sort of these these um, entertainments that were really light and fluffy. There were like these operetta movies, a lot of musicals uh, that weren't on the face of them, you know, propaganda. But the question is, you know, uh, well, were they still propping up the, the Nazi regime, you know, even though they looked harmless, um, but by sort of hiding what was going on, uh, were, were they not a kind of propaganda as well? Well, no, there's also like the other side of it where sometimes I feel like when you have a, uh, you know, a corrupt or authoritarian government in power, wherever it happens to be, and then you have artists working um, in that country uh, under the, you know, or within the constraints of that system, sometimes you'll see, uh, movies or other artwork that is produced that on its face isn't uh, necessarily subversive, uh, but then right. like a close read of it actually reveals that it, it's quite subversive. And I wish I could think, yeah. like, I can't think off the top of my head of a movie that does that, but you know, I've, you know, I, I remember reading about them or I remember uh, seeing something on uh, TV one time about them mm-hmm. that fell right into that category and they're playing clips from it. And you realize just how clever the director had to be in order to execute that without getting himself executed. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, there's a, it's funny. I think there's a, there's a couple of French movies that were made under German occupation that fit that bill beautifully. Um, this one called Le Corbeau by Clouseau, I think that's, that are very cleverly subversive the way, the way you say it. Um, but Goebbels was very attuned to that. He, you know, f- fashioned himself a, 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 an expert on the cinema and a lover of the, the movies. And, uh, in 19, I think 1943, so like late in the war, things are going poorly for Germany. They made a uh, Titanic movie. There's a, there's a German adaptation of, tit- of the Titanic story. <laughs> and um, they're making this film, and it's the most expensive production up to date. It's, you know, um, and it's, it's taking too long because it's during the war and they don't have the resources. And I think Goebbels must have looked at it and figured out that 
like you say, that that this was in fact um, subversive because it's it's about you know Titanic is generally a story about hubris, right? And there's this giant project that um, that's moving uh, across the ocean and, it, and it's it's bound it's bound uh, for doom, right? It's going to end in tragedy because they're all oblivious and um, and they're pushing the ship too hard. And somehow Goebbels read this as critical of the of the Third Reich. So he had the director arrested, and um, uh, the next morning he was found hanged in a cell, right? Um, and they put a new director on it and finished the movie with with a new guy, you know? <laughs> um, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sort of crazy stories like that I found researching my, um, my story where, where I got worried that no matter what I could come up with, it, it could not be as sort of outlandish and unbelievable as, as what really happened in those years. Well, and, you know, when you talk about people like this mass exodus that happened, you know, as you came up on 1933, mm-hmm. um, it's a question that has occurred to me before is that, like, if I, were, if I would have been there and I would have been alive at the time, would I ha- have had my ear to the ground well enough to know what was going on and would I have, have had the good sense to get out? Like, particularly if I was, you know, in immediate danger, you know, like... How I guess my question is, um, you know, from the the research that you've done and from your own, you know, uh, grounding in that culture and your historical understanding, like how blatantly obvious was it to the the average person there? Do you know what I'm saying? Or was it like mm-hmm. one of the, was it one of those things that sort of happened quietly uh, in most places and loudly in a few, and it would would have been easy to sort of miss it? Is that? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm really confused about that question. Actually, I, I, I think from what I've read, if you actually paid attention, you you would have noticed. Is is what I think because plenty of people did, you know. Um, on the other hand, um, plenty of people just kind of fell for it and went along with it for a long time. So it, it must have been convincing enough. I that's a question I, I grapple with seriously because you know you always wonder what would I have done and what you know. Um, and and I think one of the driving things behind writing this book really was what what was that moment like, and would you have would you have stayed or would you have gone? And that's where it dovetails a little bit with my own experience too, as someone who who left the country. And you know, it's an, it's an immigrant story, and I'm interested in that. And um, well, and what about the and, and what about the you know the role of the artist in a society like that? Because obviously, if your life is in danger, there's no shame in getting out. But, right. you know, there is also, I think, maybe a, a counterpoint to that, uh, at least to a certain extent, where that says, you know, if you're there, um, you know, as an artist, you have a responsibility to communicate uh, the truth as you see it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, mm-hmm. like to try to issue some sort of corrective through your art or to try to find a way to subvert, you know, what you see as being um, evil or authoritarian or, you know... Yeah, there's there's a line in the book where where he says, you know, it, it actually took courage to stay. You know, where maybe maybe you see it coming and you figure your your place is here anyway. And there were people like that. There's a, a writer of children's books actually by the name of Irish Kessner who was exactly this case. He said, I can't I can't leave. I have to, you know, this is the, my country and it's hour of need, and I have this is when I have to stay and I have to speak truth to power. And um, of course, what happens is that. He uh, he was forbidden to write. <laughs> you know, he he, he sort of um, spent the war, I think, in a village outside outside of Berlin, and and um, 
kept quiet because they, he, he couldn't get published, you know. Um, but he refused to leave for for that reason because he thought that would be that would be the cowardly thing to do, you know. It gets it gets very tricky the more the more you think about it. Um, well, you know, and the other thing that's funny is that I think a lot of people stay just because they're lazy. You know, it's like what I got to go. I got to go to a whole new country. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think a lot of people are just like, okay, this is going to be temporary, or they tell themselves whatever they need to tell themselves in the name of convenience. Um, Right. You know, it's like, how do you, you can't be too hard on the average person. You have to have the resources to leave too. So there's a lot of different reasons to stay, but um, it's definitely fascinating history. And it's definitely, um, I don't know. It's, it's sort of bottomless trying to figure it all out. uh, Right. You know, and it's, it's such an interesting window into human behavior period. So I guess maybe uh, one of the the last question I'll ask you is like, after going through this process, writing this book, um, you know, publishing it at least, uh, you know, in the wake of moving back home after all these years being away, uh, have you, did you arrive at any sort of like uh, answer? Did you, did you get to a conclusion in your mind or reach some sort of resolution that felt satisfying to you in terms of what you were after when you sat down to start this thing? Um, <laughs> that's a big question. I'm not sure. Um, I'm happy with the book, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that that exists now. And that was something I wasn't, I'd never, it was, it was a very ambitious project for me. I'd never written anything that resembles historical fiction that would, um, you know, which only parts of this are set in the past. Um, parts of it are set in the, in the present switches back and forth, but I'd never attempted anything, uh, in that scope. I'd never attempted anything that, uh, used, uh, historical characters and this, this sort of a thriller or mystery element to it. And I'd never done anything like that. The structure of it is pretty, uh, involved. It, it, jumps back and forth. Some of it is sort of influenced by Citizen Kane, where you, you keep getting uh, alternating versions of kind of the same story from different points of views. And um, I wasn't, for the longest time, I wasn't sure that I would be able to pull this off and really, you know, end it. I was, I was worried that I would, you know, come to the end and, and the thing would sort of fall apart in my hands because the, the mystery didn't work or the, the resolution wouldn't, you know, would they wouldn't come together at all. And, um, yeah, like, you know, it's like, it's like such a common and I think almost unavoidable part of writing novel is having to live with that uncertainty right? for a long, for a long time, you know, for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to deal. It's like, it's, it's very, very difficult. And you really don't know, like you say, you can get to the end of the book and still not know, you know, it's not done until it's done. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, so in that sense, um, you know, I'm very happy that it's that it's now finally a, a, a dumb thing, you know, that I that I that I that it's finished and that it's out. And uh, that's resolution enough, huh? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna. Uh, it's been great talking with you. I appreciate it, and uh, I congratulate you on the novel, and wish you all the best of luck with it. Thank you so much, Brad, and thanks for having me. All right, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's the program. That is Jurgen Falf. Go get his book. It's a novel. It's called Kino. It's out there. It's in the world. It's waiting for you. It is available from Atticus Books. You can find him on the uh, internets at jurgenfalf.com. You can find him at fictionaut.com. He's also on Facebook, and his Twitter handle is at Muckster. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to go check out killrockstars.com. 
And thanks one more time to our sponsor, Audible.com. Don't forget to cash in, folks. Go get your free audio book. It's a special offer for listeners of this program. All you've got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope uh, that these uh, conversations are adding a dimension to your life. Are they adding a dimension? Please remember that Nathaniel Hawthorne once referred to Henry David Thoreau as being, quote, ugly as sin, end quote, and that Beethoven, upon meeting Joseph Hayden, knelt and kissed his hand. Can you believe it? Okay, I'm back again soon. There's a dog barking outside. Those neighbor kids are starting to swim in that swimming pool again. I was 15 years old 20 minutes ago, people. This goes way too fast. Don't forget to enjoy it, which is to say, don't worry about protecting yourself too much, which is to say, don't forget to be brave. <laughs>